Please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. And we'll pick up uh, right where we left off as we work through this epistle verse by verse. The last time that we were together, we discussed how Paul had sent this letter to Timothy uh, to, to assist in a, in a sort of rebuilding effort uh, in the church in Ephesus. And uh, Ephesus had been sacked by false teachers, attacked by wolves. Uh, Much of the flock had been dispersed, while a lot of those who remained, many of those who remained, were still deceived. And in chapter 1, we're told that they're deceived by men who were teaching strange doctrines. Strange doctrines, Paul said. Um, Some, it says, were telling the church they needed to be observing the Mosaic Law. Had Had to keep the tenets of the law. But Paul himself used himself as an example of grace and points out that God's grace is more than abundant to forgive even the foremost of sinners. Even me, Paul said. And um, he, he also said that no one is saved by keeping the law. The law was provided to us as a tutor, as a schoolmaster to expose our sin and our desperate need for God's grace. That we couldn't keep the law. There's no way to keep the Ten Commandments perfectly. Only one man ever did it. That is Jesus Christ. He did it on our behalf, so we find our righteousness in Him. Scripture says, For by grace we are saved through faith, that not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, lest anyone should boast. But as all false religions do, they boast. They make God's forgiveness conditional on works and participation. In any cult, salvation is always grace, God's grace plus something. God's grace plus something. Uh, it's either what we do or what we don't do. Cults, they either must recite a pledge or a prayer, give a certain amount of money, follow a certain dress code. Some even have to wear special underwear. I can't make this stuff up. It's true. Other, others mandate abstinence from things rather than than mandating things they 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 say abstinence is the way Uh, mormons for instance can't consume anything caffeinated i could never be a mormon Uh, jehovah witnesses can't celebrate birthdays they must not receive blood transfusions and there are many other things these are just examples of what you either must do or what you must uh, abstain from and back in paul's day there were cults Uh, Certain men, uh, commonly they were called Judaizers, attempted to rob Christians of their liberty in Christ. And then they wanted to place them back under this heavy yoke of bondage called the law. Uh, And in effect, making them Jews of a sort. Convert them from Christianity into Judaism. And uh, this must have driven Paul crazy. Uh, He would enter a new city, proclaim the gospel... The Holy Spirit would move, and in that apostolic era, many times with great power and signs and wonders at the preaching of the apostles, and, and many would believe, and a, and a church would be established in a town. Praise Jesus. But after Paul would then depart, he would go to a new destination to preach the gospel. The Yabuts would move in. You're probably familiar with the Yabuts. Uh, Yeah, the Yabuts took Paul's sound Bible teaching and and attempted to cast doubt on it after Paul had left town to go to another location. And and so Paul would declare God's grace. People would rejoice. Then the Yabut Judaizers would would move into town. They'd be masquerading as Christians. 
And, and, and the actual Christians would say, isn't it just wonderful how Paul has shown us in, in the Old Testament scriptures and, and, and through preaching about Christ that, that we're saved by God's grace? And the Judaizers would respond, yeah, but did you know there's other things that you need to do with that? And, and did Paul also get to the part of Christianity Did he remember to get to that? Did he have time to get to that part that talks about how you have to avoid certain meats? Especially the types that were sacrificed to idols. You don't want to go there. And and the people would say, really? Well, is there anything else we need to know? And the Yabbats would say, enthusiastically, yes. In, In fact, there is. Your men also need to be circumcised. Huh? Yeah, men need to be circumcised. Because you say you follow Jesus, right? And you want to be like Jesus. And Jesus was a Jew, you know. Jesus was circumcised. So you too are going to have to be circumcised. And, and any good Jew uh, like Jesus would have wanted you to do that. So if it's your desire to be a Christian and to follow Christ, you've got to do all these other things. See how easily that can, grace can be distorted? And, and law-keeping is very widespread today in America. Some people, some of them refer to themselves as Sabbatarians, must worship on Saturday. Others call themselves Messianic Jews. Uh, and they place large groups of people under that yoke of bondage that Peter talked about that we're no longer under. Uh, they claim to love Jesus, but in reality, they don't love Jesus enough. Because they look at what he did in obeying perfectly the law, and they say, you know what, I think I can improve on that. There ain't no improving on what Jesus did. And their goal is to improve on him. They're deceived. The Bible clearly and repeatedly indicates that we are free from keeping the tenets of the Mosaic Law. That was for Israel to set them apart from the other nations. It's not for the church. Acts 13 and Acts 15 uh, clear, clarify that easily. If you have questions about that, see one of us, uh, Pastor Weiler and myself, afterwards. We are not under the, the heavy yoke and burden of the Mosaic Law in the church. But we discover one reason that these strange doctrines were able to take root in Ephesus is because church leadership was no longer there to stand against it. Again, we've studied, we don't know exactly why they are not there, but the elders in Ephesus had defected from their post. They had had left from guarding the flock. And for this reason, in chapter 3, Paul leaves then detailed instructions, requirements for future church elders, we talked about, for deacons, who would be appointed, and then tells the church at the end of our chapter, we just finished last week, chapter 3, pick yourselves up and be a pillar of the truth. Be a pillar of the truth. Stand for it. Don't be ashamed. Conduct yourselves accordingly. Conduct yourselves in the household of God accordingly. Because he's going to tell us, challenges are right around the corner. Challenges are here today. Challenges were here then. Challenges are going to be here in the future if Christ doesn't return today. And Paul's telling them that, that you're going to have to be ready. And this is the point where we pick up and, and begin reading in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, verses 1 through 5, if you would like to follow along. Paul writes, But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, 
Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Notice in verse 1 that the Holy Spirit explicitly says, your translation may say clearly or expressly, the Holy Spirit says, that is God saying there, in latter times, some are going to fall away and depart from the faith. It doesn't mean that they changed churches. It doesn't mean that they have vacated the faith, is what he's talking about. They have fallen away from Christianity. If you remember back in our, in our series in 1 John that we studied, we learned how phrases like these latter times, last days, last hour, are consistently used in Scripture to denote a period known as the church age. That's what runs from Christ's three-year earthly ministry until His future return. The church age, the last times, the latter times. And uh, that, that's where we're at today. If, if I, don't, I don't want to go into detail, but if you remember, long ago or ancient times was back in the Old Testament with the prophets when you're reading Scripture. End times is after Christ's return. Right now we are in the latter times, the latter days, which, which we're talking about here. And, and uh, so this text of the latter times, it, the passage refers directly to Timothy. It refers directly to us. We are in the latter times. And the Holy Spirit of God says what? Some will fall away. Some will fall away. The Greek word here, fall away or depart, possibly your translation says. It is literally apostatized in the Greek. We talk about that all the time. These are church-going folks. Uh, They've been claimed to be Christian, and then they apostatize, which means you just make a final departure from the faith of Christianity. doesn't refer to someone who moves to another town. They've left the faith. This is someone who thought they were, but never really were saved. They just thought they were. They blended in. Jesus gives the parable of the soils in Luke chapter 8, verse 13. We see this. Jesus said, Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, they receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while. And in time of temptation, Jesus says they fall away. They didn't believe genuinely. They believed something superficially about Jesus. We've got that all over our culture today. People believe something about Jesus. But do they trust in Jesus? And according to Jesus' own interpretation of this this parable, uh, these people experience no heart change, no genuine uh, bearing of fruit, no perseverance in the faith. They're not for real. The Apostle John said it this way, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained, but they went out so that it would be shown or made manifest that they were not really of us. They were never really of us. These are false professions of false converts. Sometimes sometimes they remain in the church for years, but they're nominal Christians by name only. Let's talk about that to your favorite political party, which we're not going to bring up. But sometimes you say they're name only. That's what they were. They're Christians in name only. And in no way, is what I want to clarify here, in no way does this passage teach that some will lose their salvation. It's not talking about genuine believers. That's important. That's the point I wanted to make here, is if you're a genuine Christian, you're chosen by God, sealed by His Holy Spirit, you will persevere to the end. Amen? Amen. But even during the period of the apostles, the apostles were on the scene, 
There, there are people falling away. One reason that Paul provides that they fall away is it's impossible for them to endure sound doctrine. In, in Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 4, Paul exhorts Timothy to preach the word. Preach the word. That's the motto for Dallas Seminary. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. They will fall away. They will fall away. And, and the command that Paul gives Timothy here is to preach the word to cull the herd. That's what he's telling them. He doesn't say stop preaching so you don't scare anyone off. He also says uh, to teach patiently. Don't purposefully drive anyone off. Paul says false converts, they won't be able to endure sound doctrine. So, so you can be certain that the faithful preaching will sometimes thin things out. Um, let me be clear, by the way. This is the text we're in. I'm not, I'm not talking about today anything recently happened in this church. I want to make that clear. Um, just so that this isn't misunderstood. Um, church, um, preaching of the word will thin things out. And uh, at, the, at the Jacksonville Pastors Conference that Gerald and I went to back in January, uh, we, we met a fella who had a seminar there. His name was Nicholas Ellen, and he was a pastor of a new church plant in, uh, in Houston. And, and he gave a seminar. It was called Church Development Through Discipleship. He had recently planted this new church, and we're particularly impressed with him. He, he had done a lot of studies in different seminaries, had counseling degrees, MDivs, that type of thing. Very, very accomplished man, but very heart uh, genuine. And, and he, we are impressed in how he pretty much forced <laughs> a commitment to doctrine among his people. He, he had standards of discipleship. He had standards for his church membership, what they would do as members. Uh, they were hard standards. They were difficult, <laughs> more difficult than Pastor Weiler or I would ever expect to anticipate to want to put out there. But we're really like, he, he's talking about scripture memory. He's talking about commitments to doctrine of personal service. And if he, he's like, if you're going to be a member of this church, you're going to serve. So I guess we're on topic here. A really nice guy, but he said, you know what? The American church is headed for some immense challenges ahead. Doctrinally, in this country, legally, all kinds of things. He said, we are headed for some immense challenges. And those who are true Christians need pastors to prepare them for it. Prepare them for it. He, he said, we don't dumb down our flock to the lowest common denominator at our church. He said, we challenge people to rise up. We challenge them to grow in their understanding of the Bible. And he said, our church, we're growing in depth and in spirituality and in service. And we're all sitting there marveled. We're like, wow, this guy is tough. And one person spoke up. Well, how many people do you have in your church? He said, um, he replied with a smile. He said, you know, about 100. He said, I think we're about to grow to about 80. <laughs> he said, we're going to take it deep. And if people don't want to endure sound doctrine, if they want to have their ears tickled, wrong place. <laughs> so uh, 
There, are, there is a day when people want their ears tickled. We have that day today. You look on television, it's happening. And it will gather large crowds of people together. You'll see that. They'll appeal to every fleshly desire. Some will fall away. Some will fall away. You know, Satan has no shortage of theological myths in order to spread around. He, he's, he's replete with them. He's got everything under the sun to, by which to seduce people. And, and probably one of the most seductive today uh, seductive, deceitful spirit is just the prosperity gospel. That, that once you become a Christian, that now God is so pleased with you immediately that you're going to have lots of money and lots of wealth and it's, and it's going to show and you can just be, be assured through your experience and being successful that God approves of you. Really? How many of us here can claim that? Success, money, opulence. So, so by their experience they teach that you can know God, that you're a Christian because God has blessed you. That's a lie straight from the pit of hell. That's all that is. It's a seducing doctrine of demons. And there are many people who fall away to biblical messages, or to messages that aren't based in the Bible like that. And this seduction, this allure to that type of thing is what we're looking at in 1 Timothy 4. In verse 1 it says, Some will fall away from the faith, paying attention giving heed to, being seduced by, deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And of course, false teachers, they don't come in and announce that they have the doctrine of demons with them. Hey, these are some doctrine of demons. Can I help out you know, with what you're doing around here? Anything, anywhere I can fit in. No, they claim to just be good old-fashioned Christian folk. And they deceive... 1 John 4, one says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Because many false prophets, John writes, have gone into the world. Many. Many. Don't give heed to them, he says. Don't pay attention. Don't be seduced by them. This term, giving heed, it means to give devotion to. It means to form an alliance with these deceitful spirits. Don't do that, he says. Instead, Paul would tell us to give heed to what? Swear allegiance to what? That is very simple to answer. Look down a few verses to verse 13 with me. We'll cover in a couple weeks. Paul provides the answer to what to give to heed to. Verse 13, he tells Timothy, Until I come, give attention to... Exact same word as in verse 1. Give heed to, devote yourself to, swear allegiance to what? The public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Doctrine. Doctrine. Timothy, Timothy publicly read the Scriptures, explain them, encourage people to, to believe them and to obey them, exhort in sound teaching. The Greek word there is, is the same as doctrine. Exhort in doctrine. Give your allegiance to that. Don't beware of a seducing spirit. And we might wonder, why is sound doctrine so important? It's because Satan is so crafty. Satan is so crafty. Uh, his servants, they'll blend, they'll mingle biblical teaching with error. They'll blend it together in order to, to deceive people through convoluted lies. Look with me at verse 2. It says that they deceive by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Hypocrisy of liars. This is a fascinating verse. Uh, this phrase, hypocrisy of liars, it's literally interpreted hypocritical lie speakers. 
Hypocritical lie speakers. How can you be a hypocrite and a lie speaker? The idea here is implied that these crafty people, they intellectually know what they are doing when they're speaking the lie. They know what they're doing. Have you ever watched a television show with a certain type of preacher or something and you listen to him and you're like, I don't think that guy even believes what he's preaching. He knows that isn't true. Yet he's saying it in order to to deceive people, to be convincing of them, to allure them with the flesh and draw away undiscerning people to himself, make disciples after himself for his own needs. For his own needs. Hypocritical lie speakers. And this posture, this, this could describe anyone from prosperity preachers to cult leaders do the same thing. They know full well what they're teaching is false most of the time. They know it. Yet they desire converts to follow them. Who's going to finance their opulent lifestyle? You've got to have converts. And they draw away undiscerning people. They brainwash. And they bolster people by pride. Bolster people by pride. They know exactly what they're doing. And they don't care. They don't care. Their conscience, it says, is seared. Greek term here for seared. So what, we, what has been translated uh, in the modern of cauterized. Cauterized. It's a medical term. It's where the nerve endings are burned. They're deadened to any feeling or sensitivity. They don't care. They don't care who gets misled, who gets sucked into their schemes, as long as they attain their objective. And this, this phrase here translated seared as with a branding iron. It adds a lot of insight. It indicates people who are deceiving others, leading others astray, and how they are permanently marked by Satan. Satan has branded them as his own. Seared, marked, as with a branding iron. They belong to him. There's no way for us to, to know exactly who is a hypocritical lie speaker who knows what they're speaking all the time, or someone who's just self-deceived has believed something in error and has committed. No way for us to really know the difference all the time. We don't have to know. It's not, not necessary that we know which are which. We simply have to watch out for those spirits. Those spirits that deceive from sound doctrine. Because they're dangerous. And, and, and of course, we all know, you know, the writer of Timothy, that's a long time ago. You know, the church has come so far today... It's nice we no longer have to worry about any of these guys in the modern church. There's neither lesson nor application we can gather here together from this, this, uh, this verse here. Uh, scriptures are delightful to read, but, but very obsolete. Not exactly. Until recently, I won't say how recently, we had a new visitor here who was weaving himself into, himself into our midst. And... and he said he was a born-again Christian. And in fact, he identified himself as a Baptist. We're not really a Baptist church, but we're very similar. So we'd hear that and we'd think that's, that's close. You know, and, and we've got a Baptist here. And, and he claimed that he graduated from a historically reputable Baptist seminary with a Master's of Divinity. And, and, but even at our first meeting, Pastor Weiler and I, the first time he came... Uh, we heard him say a few things that were a bit off. He, he leaned quite charismatic. Uh, he, he was a blip on our radar. 
We're like, wonder what he's here for. And, and is he here? The question that we asked was, is he here to learn the Bible, harmonize with us, grow in Christ along with the rest of us, or not? Is he here to spread false doctrine? Why is he here? We didn't know. Uh, we weren't sure. But sure enough, he attended long enough he, where he grew comfortable, and he started sharing his doctrines with people. And, and Gerald and I both saw him talking, and, and, and I'm, we're thinking, what is he communicating? You know, we're like, wolf, sheep. Wolf, sheep. We're like, I'm not sure. But, but um, this fellow finally engaged a couple of discerning folks in our midst and was sharing with them. And Gerald and I saw it, and they're like, we need to call them tomorrow. Ask what it is that he's sharing over there. So we gave a call, and, and to each of these, they both said, you know, I was just about to contact you, just about to pick up the phone Monday morning, and uh, we had a talk, and, and this fellow was confidently asserting to us that the Jesus who died on the cross is Michael the Archangel. Wolf. And, and, and we determined, you know, we have to immediately address this, and find out what's going on. I'm so proud of Gerald in this situation. Actually, I'm very proud of Bob Bittner, a board member of ours who, who is right alongside Gerald. They talked to him and, uh, and just asked him. Uh, actually, the guy came up to Gerald the next opportunity. He said, Gerald, he said, I've got some, uh, a set of three songs I'd like to sing with you. Gerald just replied, he said, I'm going to be very blunt. What is your belief about Michael, Archangel, and Jesus? And he, he replied, he said, they're the same person. And he, and he st- big mistake, he started to debate with Pastor Weiler. And uh, he wasn't about to back off his position. He, he wasn't here asking to learn. He, he, Gerald said, show me this in the scripture. And his reply was, I don't need scripture. I have had visions. And Mark, Michael the archangel told me this himself. In our own church. Can you believe that? And he was boasting about these visions that he had seen and how they were an authority, which we'll talk about in a moment. But, but Pastor Weiler replied, he said, you know, you may attend Sundays if you're willing to learn, uh, have a teachable spirit, you're willing to be corrected to learn the Bible, but you won't be permitted to teach that doctrine to other people. If you are committed to teaching that doctrine to other people, you can't remain here. You know what his reply was? Well, then I'll leave. He was never here to learn. He was here to spread false doctrine. And uh, these are the type of things we have to watch out for. And um, you wouldn't, wouldn't have known it right off the bat. People are different. We're all different. But boy, this is, this is different. And uh, this allure of visions, we think about, you know, why, why are these visions? Why would anybody follow that? To us, many of us here, I hope every one of us here, that's crazy, you know. But why would people follow that? The re- part of the reason they follow those types of things is when they get alone with, with people who talk about those things and these visions, they really magnify how wonderful these visions are, and they want to pray with people, and they want to ask, quote-unquote, God to come in and show them. And uh, there ends up, you know, the demonic realm. The demonic realm has a lot of power in order to cause things spiritually and visions and other things and um it's very alluring if you have an experience like that it's very prideful people are like man i've got it too this is good 
problem is, what does the Bible say about visions? Say, even if an angel were to come to you, do not listen to them, Galatians chapter 1. Uh, even Satan himself can disguise himself as an angel of light. No wonder his servants also disguise themselves as angels of light. So if someone has a vision, if someone has, has a, a, an experience of some kind, how do we know who's providing it? What's the source if it's not coming from the Bible? So it's not an authority for doctrine. Let's put it that way. People have experiences. I'm not going to go into that today. But, but it's not a source where we get our doctrine. We test the spirits. And, and, and the particular false doctrines in the case of 1 Timothy that we're looking at, they were uh, legalistic again. They were forbidding marriage. They're keeping dietary laws. Um, devotion to abstinence, supposedly they said, makes you holy before God. And these deceivers were, in verse 3, men who forbid marriage, advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared. And by those who believe and know the truth, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it was received with gratitude. Is abstaining from certain foods what Jesus taught the Pharisees in Mark 7.19? No. No. Jesus declared all foods clean. All of them. And he said they pass into the stomach, and then they are eliminated. He said, it's not that that makes you unclean. It is what proceeds out from the heart, from within, that makes you unclean. He goes into a whole laundry list there. It's not what you eat. that makes you. And he said, therefore, all foods are clean. And the Apostle Paul also says in Colossians chapter 2.16, No one is to act as your judge in regard to a food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Meaning you don't become spiritual by observing things. The law is only a tutor to, to drive us to, to forgiveness. And Paul says those things were just a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And Paul continues there in Colossians, he says, Let no one keep defrauding you by delighting in self-abasement and the, the worship of angels. Taking his stand on visions he has seen. Inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. Pride there. And not holding fast to the head, which is Christ. Got to hold fast to the head, which is Christ. We don't ha- hold fast to Michael the Archangel. Just show his angels' visions, pride again. But what Paul is ensuring here in both situations, we don't become holy, acceptable, sanctified uh, by God by adhering to things like festivals and ceremonies and Sabbaths. That was for Israel. We don't become holy and acceptable uh, to God by abstaining from things either, prohibited types of food or drink. Our only source of personal holiness and righteousness is the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. The sinless obedience of Jesus Christ. That's all. The finished work of Christ. The finished work of Christ. Decisions on food and drink and uh, days of worship, types of ceremonies, they're not moral issues. They're not moral issues. We don't find our righteousness in what we eat or don't eat. That's what he's saying. And to focus on these things, what you eat, what you don't eat, going through lists with people about what they do and don't do, what they wear and don't wear, all these things distract from the righteousness of Christ. And they draw attention to us as individuals. And this is one reason 
that we strive not to focus attention unduly to individuals during the service. Uh, we're we're non charismatic is is what we a term we use. We don't have people flock into the aisles, waving flags, falling down, coming forward during the worship service. We, we don't do that. It draws our attention away from Jesus Christ and the doctrine and the words and the worship, and, and it redirects us our attention to the individual who is doing the behavior. It takes it off from Christ. The, the, Corinth, the Corinthians greatly erred in that. If you read 1 Corinthians, worship became displays of individuals rather than worship of Christ. So we're careful about that. There's two other very big theological errors that are in verses 3 and 4. We know these are serious errors because Paul restates it twice. Verse 3, God has created all types of food. God has created to be gratefully shared. Verse 4 again, everything is created by God and good. Nothing is to be rejected. It is to be received with gratitude. Gratefully shared again. God created, gratefully shared. And this deception present today in the dietary restrictions, it exists in a false declaration. Not everything's created by God and not everything is actually good. They say that God, what God has created is not good. Some of it's not good. You shouldn't have it. Abstain from it. How does that square with Genesis? Everything that God created, he saw, was good. So, so when things God has provided for food are rejected instead of gratefully shared, it lends to the perception, you know, God isn't really that good in what he created. And so that leads to the second deception in the verse, that God's not to be thanked for all of this. The lie is, we don't need to have this attitude of gratitude to God for what we have or for what he's created. It means it didn't originate from God. God didn't create it. Because God didn't create anything. And, and where do we find this philosophy today? Evolution. Evolution teaches that God didn't create these wonderful things to be shared. Therefore, we have no need to thank God for it. And you ask the children in school today, where did the steak and potato come from? And I say, well, my science teacher just told me it happened. Well, little Johnny, who do you thank for it before the meal? Ah, uh, time, space, and chance. Didn't come from God? Really? Do we recognize how that robs the glory from God? Robs God of his glory. And the scientists that promote it are just as this passage says. They're hypocritical lie speakers. Why? It's because scientists know that the, by examining the archaeological evidence and the timetables, it didn't happen over millions of years. They know that. The fossil record doesn't support that. The fossil record better supports the Bible. And there, there are no transitional species. There are no short-necked giraffes. There are no in-between species. Everything uh, in the fossil evidence shows that God has created everything according to its kind. And the evidence points to a worldwide flood. And scientists know this. They will not acknowledge the truth. Romans 1, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. 
For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God existed, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image of, and form of a corruptible man, and of birds, and of four-footed animals, and of crawling creatures. So the people don't worship God who created the creatures or give thanks to him for them. Instead, they worship the creatures. So again, we find that God doesn't receive the glory that he is to, uh, is to receive. And this is a full-time gig for, for the deceptive spirits. They, they have all kinds of things to distract from God, detract from God, and, and rob, rob credit from God, and, and say God didn't give it to us. And, and we shouldn't thank him for it. And Instead, they'd say abstain from things. Abstain from wonderful things that he's given that God has given us to be blessed with, but there's no reason to do so. Verse 5 says, Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified, it means made holy, by the word of God and prayer. This is a challenging verse. You know, how are things, inanimate objects like marriage and food, sanctified? How do they become holy through the word of God and prayer? You know, food is amoral. And Jesus has made all foods clean. So how can they become holy? I'm going to go a bit out on a limb here. Because I didn't find an explanation in anything I read on this that I really seemed real rational on this. Uh, so I kind of came to this conclusion on my own, so beware. I mean, uh, we, we do pray before meals. We, we thank God for it. We show our gratitude for what he's given us. But does the meal become sanctified itself? The meal itself, does it become sanctified? No, it doesn't become holy. Um, it's an inanimate object. That would seem a bit mystical for me that the food is suddenly holy. And, and, and how could food itself become holy? I think this means that things become holy in how we consume or partake in them. Let's face it, you know, you and I can consume foods in a manner which is unholy. It's not godly. Food's amoral, but both gluttony and hoarding foods to yourself, that's unholy. And and enjoying sex and marriage, you know, they're both permissible and they're both a blessing, but it too can be practiced in a manner which is unholy. So the way we eat, the way we marry, the way we we enjoy every perfect gift that God from above has given us becomes holy for us and pleasing to God in the sense that we partake of it in a manner which is in harmony with God's word, with our conscience cleansed through prayer. We know this is okay before God. We're going to consume in this way. How do you and I respond? You know, the Holy Spirit warns us ahead of time these things are going to happen passage says we're to protect ourselves be ready for anticipate false doctrine you are and i are to enjoy everything god has created consume it in a manner which is worthy so i'm going to call uh, the men forward for communion lord's supper and christ gave the lord's supper to his church to be shared as a memorial and even the way that that was enjoyed and received was distorted by the early church. 
the church in Corinth. Some consumed it. You know, that was originally a full meal when the church got together. And some were consuming it in a way that was sinful. And, and, and those who had much to eat, they were excluding others who had very little or none. Instead of unity, communi- communion was a time of division. Paul says, you know, eating a meal wasn't the reason Jesus gave the Lord's Supper. So why don't you just eat at home, he said, if that's what it's going to be. It's a memorial. And, and some people were coming to get drunk, indulging themselves in things that were supposed to be gratefully shared. And, and Paul indicates, you know what, you better examine yourself. Examine yourself, judge yourself, or you're going to be judged by God. And that was happening in Corinth as well. And so the Lord's Supper is a time for self-examination. It's a time for us of repentance, and, and it's a memorial. Uh, so we provide an opportunity during the distribution of the elements for you to examine yourself, to pray, for reflection. And if you're new here, uh, we practice open communion, Port St. Lucie Bible Church. If you have trusted in Christ that he died for your sins, that he bore your sins in his body on the cross, and you've been reconciled to God through that shed blood and, and sacrificed body, if you believe he arose from the grave in victory, reconciling to you God, reconciling to you God, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, waiting to come again to judge the living and the dead. We invite you to join us in commemorating that in the Lord's Supper.